0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Warm greetings from Northwest Germany. Welcome to my show. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the host. Today, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Marco Weiss with us to speak about his new book entitled Post Colonial Security Britain. France, and West Africa's Cold War, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Marco, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself.
2: Yes, Don, uh, Thank you very much. First of all, uh, for having me here and to the network actually being interested in my book. Uh, so, yeah, happy to say a few words about uh, where I'm actually coming from. So, I was from town in Switzerland, bilingual town. So, first went to German speaking school, and then later completed my courses at the French speaking school in Neuchatel. I then went on to study uh, history, philosophy and journalism at the University of Neuchâtel, international history at the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva, and then uh, did a double PhD at the universities of Nottingham and Neuchâtel. Now, how did I become interested in writing this book? Um, Well, it took a bit of a detour, a rather long one, to get there. So, initially, I was interested in the Second World War, but then for my PhD, moved into Cold War history. But there, the focus was on Europe and neutrality, and not Africa's Cold War. But it was then during my postdoc years that I sort of embarked on a two track journey that would eventually lead me to the Cold War in West Africa. On the one hand, I took my research on neutrality from Europe and sort of went global with it and sort of became more interested in neutrality and its uh, third world non-alignment in the global Cold War. And on the other hand, uh, while I was working for the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich, I began to take an interest in peacekeeping and France's security role in Africa. And this actually took me uh, to Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa in particular. Now, I was aware of France's extensive military role and footprint in sub-Saharan Africa, but it was actually when for my work in security studies, I ended up visiting the French military base in Bourdieu next uh, to Abidjan, uh, the Ivorian capital, to interview French officers, when I actually fully realized France's military might in Africa, and also particularly its rather nonchalant attitude towards what was supposed to be a post-colonial, not a neo-colonial African security uh, architecture. So I wanted to know why and how France actually uh, retained and managed to retain such a you know, security role in Africa, despite decolonization. And this question seemed to me of particular relevance because the other major former colonial power in Africa, that is Britain, had almost completely withdrawn from Africa by the end of the Cold War. And such interventions as the one in uh, Sierra Leone a couple of decades ago was uh, the exception confirming the rule. Now, confronted with this divergence, I sort of decided to, not only to adopt a comparative perspective, but particularly return to the past to study the making of post-colonial security relationships during the transfer of power and the early years of independence. So I'm happy to say a few more words, how I came about to write Post-colonial security and how to approach it, when I will talk later on in the second part about the book itself.
1: Thank you, Marco. It sounds fascinating. What main messages do you intend to convey to readers?
2: So perhaps before I come to the, uh, the specific messages which I will focus on in a second, I would talk perhaps a few more words how I ended up, uh, you know, properly approaching uh, this topic, I think it's important that I perhaps say a few words on which countries in particular, I focused once I sort of transformed this initial thought into a fully-fledged research project. In so doing, I intended to focus on uh, the two West African heavyweights, um, Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, because these two countries, they were in the sub-region of Africa where not only the decolonization wave took shape, but also um, where actually the Cold War somehow made its debut uh, south of the Sahara. So also these two countries, and I think that's why they're very pertinent when you compare uh, Britain's and France's post-colonial security roles in Africa during the Cold War uh, or at the height of the early African Cold War, what I considered it to be, um, is also that there were uh, moderate countries, so they were Western-oriented, and not Eastern-oriented. And I'll say a bit more why also this is relevant from a historiographical perspective. So now having this out of the way on which countries I particularly focus, it might make a bit more sense to say now what are my key messages that I'd like to convey to the readers. So first of all, I argue that... And that's important that the post-colonial security relationships that we have today were largely already determined during the transfer of power and the first years of independence. Another point which is important is that Britain and France, they of course had relatively similar strategies, namely that they wanted to maintain a formal security influence in their former colonies, especially Cote d'Ivoire and Nigeria, but they had different grand strategies. So Britain chose to fight the global Cold War with the United States eventually and approach the African former colonies through that lens. France, by contrast, pursued a neo-colonial policy in Africa, uh, which was in pursuit of its so-called policy of greatness, policy of grandeur. Now, a key uh, argument in the book is, of course, that in actually then how this uh, post-colonial security relationship was negotiated uh, was the role of the African elites in determining the post-colonial security relationships, but these had to respond to local, sub-regional and regional, as well as, of course, uh, uh, the international factors. But I argue, and I think this is a key message in the book, is that it was ultimately the local... Uh, domestic factors that were key in causing the divergence in the post-colonial security relationships of Britain and Nigeria on the one hand, and France and Cote d'Ivoire on the other. And I think this is uh, very important because this really gave different characteristics, because notably uh, on that was caused by the different uh, domestic uh, systems, because What is important is that the Nigerian and Ivorian governments they were as such in their outlook rather similar. Uh, They were both anti-communist, they did not want the Soviets or the communist Chinese anywhere near if possible, if they could avoid it, and they were western oriented. However, there the domestic factors, notably having a degree of democracy in Nigeria despite the corruption led the Nigerians to turn to Western powers such as the United States and uh, of course also West Germany, as I show in the book. But in Côte d'Ivoire, there was no domestic opposition. So, or if there was, it was annihilated by Ouf the president of Côte d'Ivoire. And so he mainly used perhaps to some extent uh, the French fears of United States encroachment on its fear of influence to get from the French what it wanted, whereas Nigeria, in pursuit of what I show in the book to be a Western version of neutralism or non-alignment, tried to reduce in anti-colonial manner its reliance on the British for security and defense. And of course, this was not what its leader, Sir Abu Tafawa Balewa had necessarily in mind, but he was forced to do so by domestic factors, hence the divergence uh, between the two post-colonial security relationships on the study.
1: Marco, given West Africa's importance during the Cold War, quite some people have written about Nigeria, Kuti Divoire and their relations with Britain, France, the United States, West Germany, India, Canada, the People's Republic of China, Israel, etc. But you revealed quite a rich, multi-layered and often messy world of post-colonial security and intervention in that part of the world. Could you tell the audience a bit more about the theories and approaches in security studies and diplomatic history you employed to execute the writing
2: well thank you very much for your kind of words in relation to my uh, efforts and approach now please allow me to make a few comments in relation to uh, the historiography that you referred to now There has been a certain amount of historical literature on West Africa in the Cold War, uh, not least because, of course, it was in West Africa uh, that the Soviet Union made its first incursions into sub-Saharan Africa, notably in Guinea and Ghana. However, I think overall the literature on what I consider Africa's early Cold War in West Africa uh, remains rather patchy. And I think there are three reasons why the historiography remains rather patchy. Firstly, um, and of course, these reasons have to do with the spectacular to some extent. Firstly, Cold historians have extensively focused uh, on the 1970s and early 1980s that were more, far more brutal and militarized and saw more you know, militarized involvement, especially of the two superpowers and uh, their allies. Secondly, the literature on Africa's early Cold War, if you look at the late 50s and early 60s, This particular period focused very much on the Congo crisis, which, again, seemed to be more spectacular than uh, what I'm studying, uh, or, for instance, others have in relation to development aid and so on. Thirdly, and I think this is a key argument, and that tends to be forgotten when one thinks about the Cold War, is that West Africa's Cold War was actually relatively peaceful, but that does not mean... That it's not worthwhile studying because it is intriguing to see how different external Cold War non-aligned and Commonwealth actors such as West Germany, India, Canada, and the People's Republic of China actually tried to position themselves in order to gain influence in post-colonial Africa. So I think there is much that remains to be written about West Africa's Cold War, and especially even more so if one wants to bring in uh, the African uh, perspective. And I think this is something that uh, brings me now to your actual question and is, of course, something key in my book. So from past research and peacekeeping and France's military role in Africa, I was aware that African elites... Uh, are uh, were and are key in the post-colonial security relationship. This is something I notably realised when I spoke to Ivorian, uh, high-ranking Ivorian officers during my field research. So. When I, with this in mind, uh, sort of this African agency or African role in fostering or developing or designing, uh, whether consciously or not, these post-colonial security relationships, I searched for a theoretical approach to bring in the African perspective. And that's when I stumbled across post-colonial studies, because as you know, post-colonial studies, the aim is to shift the analytical focus away from the metropoles to the former colonies and it seemed pertinent because also the postulate of post-colonial studies had to some extent increasingly made it into imperial history security studies and perhaps to a lesser extent uh, into international and Cold War histories. All these different literatures of course have uh, you know fed into my book. However there are some downsides, or seem to me to be downsides to post-colonial studies. So firstly, uh, by adopting an almost exclusively subaltern approach or perspective, it sort of ran the risk of removing a key part of the equation, namely that of the external powers. Secondly, post-colonial studies seem to have a tendency to avoid high politics, and especially, even more so, military affairs. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, was that seeming lack of empirical rigor of post-colonial studies. And this lack of empirical rigor, or empirics more generally, is something that has been pointed out uh, by Africanist Frederick Cooper and Jean-Francois Bayard. Besides, I also used their works, notably Cooper's concept of the gatekeeper state and Bayard's theory of extraversion. So I just chose to use postcolonial studies to inform my project but at the same time make use of both classic and new international history approaches. This entailed taking into consideration so not only the global and the regional, but also local factors, and most importantly, of course, to carry out multi-archival research in archives in Africa, Europe, and the United States. Extensive international archival research seemed essential and still seems essential to me to get an as balanced picture as possible.
1: Thank you, Marco. Speaking of empirical primary sources, you've done a great deal of uh, original research on archival sources, a strength of your book. I wonder if you can explain to readers and listeners more how you made a conscious effort to address the imbalance between Western and African sources to bring out more African voices. What do you mean by African agency? How would you defend classical diplomatic history that has been criticized for its overemphasis on power holders and high politics?
2: Thank you. So perhaps it's best if I start actually by addressing how I came to be confronted with an archival imbalance or the world I understand by it. So, as I mentioned earlier, I made a conscious effort to shift analytical perspective from the north to the south, to reach an analytical middle ground. And, of course, gain insights into the African perspective. So for this, I made a conscious effort to consult archives in Africa. So, in addition to going through the relevant records in American, British, French and German archives, I also visited archives in Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana and Nigeria. Now, as most people have carried out archival research in Africano, There are, and this is, of course, there are a few notable exceptions, such as the archives in Ghana, for instance, there are not that many documents to be found, sadly. And this, even more so, applies to the realm of foreign and defence policy. Because in many countries, there is no archival policy that actually allows for documents to make it from the ministries and departments to the archives. Now, in Western archives, by contrast, a researcher can easily be overwhelmed by the sheer abundance of documents. And this led to this archival imbalance between the abundance of Western sources and, of course, the rather scarcity of uh, African sources. Now, this, of course, at first sight, made it rather difficult or a daunting task to actually provide African perspective and show African agency in the making of the post-colonial security relationship and this is what I call to some extent the post-colonial paradox because if on the one hand the aim is to actually of post-colonial studies or you know the post-colonial posture to actually provide the African perspective, well, on the other hand, there is a problem of sources. There are, of course, some ways to circumvent it. However, one might say that I took a rather traditional way of addressing uh, these problems. Because in my view, there's no reason to despair because of this uh, imbalance of sources. Not much one can do about it as such, because I think a diligent, critical, and simultaneous use of Western sources Allows to gain important insights into the African perspective and notably detect African agency. The careful reading of the vast body of Western sources and actually an awareness that they might be incomplete and actually there might be a biased discourse of policymakers in London, Paris, Washington, etc., it allows us a substantial degree of Nigerian and Ivorian agency. Also, the vast corpora of Western sources, of course, allows us also to uh, adopt a comparative approach. So, in my view, the key to understanding the African perspective is a conscious effort to avoid Eurocentrism. And I think also it is key to note that, in light of the distance of events, it's of course difficult, at least in the case of my book, to compensate. Uh, for the lack or the scarcity of African sources through oral history. And also, if one says to avoid, or would recommend to avoid the Western sources, well, that would have been self-defeating in my view, because it is very much in these Western sources that one can detect African agency. Admittedly, it's difficult and frequently impossible to retrace the decision-making process and motivations of African policymakers. However, well contextualized, nevertheless, the motivations can to some extent be assessed. Of course also, what has to be said that my source base inevitably privileged uh, the agency by of the African elite. However, this agency, and that's, I think, something I show in the book, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Inasmuch as it engages with and responds to external factors, so, for instance, the former colonial and the Cold War powers and the machinations, I also show in the book that it responds to regional, sub-regional, and especially domestic factors. And it was the very different domestic situations and political situations in Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire that ultimately led to these diverging security relationships with the former metropole. So even though I would consider myself more of an international than a diplomatic historian, in defense of diplomatic history, I'd like to say firstly that I hope that my book shows that this kind of history has come a long way and it can be informed by such critical approaches as post-colonial studies while still being methodologically rigorous. Also, to focus on the elites or power holders in high politics, well, whether those critical of diplomatic and international history like it or not, it is ultimately they who took the decisions that affected the security and well-being of the people.
1: Thank you, Marco. In chapters 1 to 4, you focused on the Anglo-Nigerian Defense Agreement, the Franco Ivorian Cooperation Agreements, the significant relinquishment of British colonialism in Nigeria, and the strengthening of Franco Ivorian collaboration roughly from the late 1950s to the 1960s. How did the character of the individual leaders such as Abubakar, Tifawa, Bilawa, Felix uh, witt uh, Boyne, Harold uh, McMillan, and Charles de Gaulle in these former colonies and metropoles shape the divergent contours of national independence, security, Military and economic ties among themselves.
2: I think so. Yeah, it's really interesting to uh, focus on the the individual leaders and how their, I mean, their role and how their characters, uh, are, you know, affected, of course, the post-colonial security relationship between the former metropole and former colony. Now, I argue in my book, of course, I put a heavy emphasis on the role of the Ivorian and Nigerian leaders. Um, so let me first. I try briefly, you know, present perhaps Macmillan and De Gaulle before turning uh, to uh, their African counterparts. Now, the difference in the leadership uh, was, of course, not only caused in the difference in character, but I would say more importantly so by the rather different, or different political systems they operated in. Now, De Gaulle operated on the pretty much a political system that he created for himself, well, the constitution of the Fifth Republic. It was not only tailored towards himself, uh, for himself, but also gave him almost monarchical power. Now, Macmillan and his successors, Alec Douglas home and Harold Wilson, they, by contrast, they, well, they had to work with their cabinet. They couldn't just dictate uh, to their ministers and, most importantly, they were also accountable to Parliament in Westminster. Another factor in the diverging positions and policies of the British and the French were, of course, the ways in which they responded to the debacle of uh, the Suez crisis. Following Suez, Macmillan, he aimed for interdependence with the United States, together with the United States, first fighting the Cold War in Europe, and then increasingly also, uh, and on a global scale, uh, the global Cold War. Inevitably, Britain, you know, it was not an interdependence of equals. It was rather Britain increasingly becoming the junior partner. Now, de Gaulle, by contrast, he... Aimed for an independent French role in the world, and pursued what I already mentioned—a policy of grandeur, which was epitomised by the force de frappe, so the French nuclear bomb or deterrent. They also had different understandings and visions for Africa. Now, France um, had already earlier on, and to a much heavier, ex- uh, much more substantial extent, relied on Africa for its empire, whether it was soldiers or strategic depth from the first world war on and then especially in the second world war now britain you know in british uh, imperial thinking uh, africa was always of sort of a secondary rank and it was only in the second world war that it Gains some prominence, and that would only last into the very immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Now, when de Gaulle returned to power in 1958, unlike in the British case for the French, or for him, the colonies were absolutely key in pursuit of his policy of grandeur. And Macmillan's case, Africa, had gained some increased strategic importance following British setbacks in the Middle East, not only Suez, but also the Iraqi revolution in 1958. But it had importance, Africa, but not necessarily in itself, but rather actually from a Cold War perspective. So Cold War considerations increasingly convinced London that it had to let go of its African colonies if necessary even relinquish informal control. Now, Paris, by contrast, was absolutely adamant to keep its colonies within its orbit, or at least guarantee its sphere of influence. Nevertheless, both Emile and De Gaulle, they wanted actually to formally retain their security roles in Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, respectively, despite independence. And in so doing, the policies, and I think this is important, of course, they were not the only uh, key players from a British and French perspective. They uh, were influenced and assisted by such important figures as Duncan Sandys in the British case, who was uh, first Defence and then later uh, Commonwealth Secretary. And in the French case, uh, very importantly, of course, uh, Jacques Foccart, uh, de Gaulle's Monsieur l'Afrique, uh, really uh, the man who... Uh, helped De Gaulle extensively shape uh, France's role in Africa since independence. Ultimately, and that's an argument I make quite strong in the book, their ability, however, to shape the post colonial security relationships heavily relied on their Nigerian and Ivorian counterparts, Félix Oufé-Boigny in Côte d'Ivoire and Sir Abubakar Tafawa Balewa in Nigeria. Now, as such, the Nigerian and Ivorian leaders, they were quite similar, you know, from a distance. Both were conservative and capitalist. Both were strongly anti-communist. They also shared an aversion to its pan-Africanism. So that means they were not in favor of African integration. They only favored African economic cooperation. They both were Anglophile and Francophile, respectively and both they wanted to remain close to their former colonial power. There were, however, also differences in the way they were connected to their metro, former metropole. Félix since the nine, early 1950s, had been very much part of the French political system. He had served as a minister in a number of governments of the fourth French Republic. Baleva, he had indeed, uh, to some extent, been groomed by the British in the run-up to independence and was also a leading politician of the northern region, which was, had always been close to Britain and on which Britain had relied upon to rule Nigeria, uh, this indirect rule, a famous indirect rule. However, what has to be emphasised is that Baleva was also the person who was chosen to be prime minister to lead Nigeria, into independence. Now, Félix Oufo-Boigny in Côte d'Ivoire, he never actually initially did not want his country to become independence. He lobbied in favor, extensively in favor of the French community, which was de Gaulle's project to salvage the French empire in 1958. So when de Gaulle eventually in early 19, or late 1959, gave in to African demands for independence, Félix he was disappointed, if not even outright angry with the Gaul. And it was a, as a result of this disappointment and to show his African leadership credentials that oufo then drove a very hard bargain with the French during the negotiations for the post-colonial security relationship. The Nigerian leadership too became more assertive in the run-up and especially following independence. But it was not really caused by Baleva, but rather by some in his government, so notably his coalition partners from the Eastern dominated party, the NCNC, and more importantly, of course, the opposition, which was fueled by protests in the street. More external criticism by such voices as Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah, who accused, of course, Nigeria of a new colonial collusion. Well, he accused also Cote d'Ivoire, but because of the difference in political system, it had more of an effect in Nigeria than it had in Cote d'Ivoire, because it it was these different political systems and domestic situations of Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire that heavily influenced the post-colonial security relationship and the relationship more broadly. In corrupt yet democratic Nigeria, Baleba's government tried to calm dissenting voices by pursuing a policy of non-alignment and in order to do so, reduce the reliance on Britain. And this first led to the abrogation of the Anglo-Nigerian Defence Agreement and then an increasing reliance on other powers for military assistance. In Cote d'Ivoire, by contrast, Felix Uffeguani enjoyed an unrivalled moral, tribal and political authority Which he secured and reinforced through the establishment of a de facto one party state and increasingly authoritarian rule. And it was in this very endeavor that he relied on and colluded with France. He was increasingly paranoid of any potentially dissenting voices, which he most likely falsely accused of plotting against him. And he carried out extensive purges, notably with French assistance, and this left him pretty much unchallenged in Cote d'Ivoire. So, whereas Oufo-Boigny relied for the security of his country, regime and himself on the French, Baleva, he and his government tried, though half-heartedly to phase out British influence, especially in the security sector.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Indeed, different political systems produced different uh, post-colonial security relations. In chapters 5 to 8, you presented some competitors or new kids on the block, so to speak, in the Western African power play landscape including the United States, the Soviet Union, West Germany, the PRC and Czechoslovakia. How did the domestic, local, regional and international factors contribute to the expanded influences of West African agency when they chose the different suppliers of economic and military aid? what were the dynamics among the multitude of African agencies? What was the institutional legacy of post-colonial security in Africa's Cold War?
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think I already to some extent um, addressed, of course, the question of the domestic, uh, i.e. local level, but I'll try now to expand a bit on it and also to address uh, the question specifically in relation to the alternative supplies of economic and military systems, and in so doing, also address the regional and international dimensions. So, perhaps let's start look at the sort of uh, macro international level and take it on from there. Now, this uh, predominantly, not exclusively, a cold war dimension was, of course, important, but it was not the only important one. Now. The Soviet Union's Third World Offensive arrival and arrival in West Africa was alarming, of course, to the United States. Now, the Eisenhower administration began to take a closer interest in Africa as a result of it, though a very hesitant closer interest. And it was under Kennedy then that Washington developed a full-blown aid policy and started investing large sums in Africa. Yet it's important to note, I think, that the United States was very reluctant to provide military assistance uh, to African countries because it wanted to prevent the Cold War from turning hotter and uh, it was only willing to step in when the West influence seemed at risk. And let's not forget, um, in the 60s, the United States was getting more and more into trouble in, uh, in Vietnam. Now the Soviets, they they had no such qualms, you know, from turning the Cold War Africa hotter, and they didn't have, you know, any democratic accountability, so they were happy to provide military in addition to economic assistance. And in these efforts, it was often, uh, or these efforts were often complemented, if not spearheaded, by Czechoslovakia, which also pursued its uh, not only communist but of course, also national interests and also economic interest. So when it came to military assistance, the Nigerian and Ivorian leaders, they had suddenly the choice between East and West, like Arsene had many of their African uh, fellows. Now, theoretically, this of course, gave them an important leverage when negotiating the post-Colonial relationship with London and Paris respectively. Now, it's important to emphasize here that the point I make repetitively in the book is that neither Baleva nor Ufebwani ever considered turning east for military assistance. Yet the specter that they might do so was a concern for Western policymakers. And this was notably the case in Nigeria where opposition forces called for turning eastwards or at least rebalancing the Nigerian position in line with its proclaimed foreign policy of non-alignment. So as a result, that leading non-aligned country India could be appealing for helping Nigeria develop its armed forces. Yet the real competition between military assistance played out within uh, the Western bloc, now confronted with critical voices from within their governments the opposition and the streets who wanted to reduce the reliance on the former colonial power as well as criticism from such so-called radical countries like kwama and krumas ghana they could also turn to alternative suppliers from within the west or allies of the western bloc and it was there then when west germany in the Nigerian case and Israel in the Ivorian case came into the picture. They were actually happy to offer their assistance because, and that's important to emphasize, they were not motivated by the global Cold War as such, but rather their own conflicts. In the German case, that was the parallel German -German Cold War. And in the Israeli case, it was, of course, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Both West Germany and Israel wanted to gain friends in Africa and the Third World more generally. So as a result, the former colonial powers suddenly faced unexpected competition from their own allies and friends. And this gave African leaders additional agency, which was both strengthened and constrained by local and regional factors. Now, in the case of Nigeria, Domestic opposition and accusations by such rivaling African states like Ghana pushed the government to reduce its reliance on Britain in military terms and seek this very military assistance that it did not want to have any more from Britain, from Canada, India, and especially West Germany, notably for the establishment of its air force. In the case of Cote d'Ivoire, the domestic and regional push for alternative providers of military assistance was much more constrained. Israel's involvement in the Ivorian security sector was largely pushed by the Ivorian defense minister, which then later temporarily fell out of favor with Ouattara, and Ouattara's fear of foreign-sponsored subversion, notably by Ghana, which made him increasingly rely on French assistance and protection. Nevertheless, despite this limited push for external support other than uh, French, Israel managed to tem- temporarily make important inroads into the Ivorian security sector through its assistance to the Ivorian civic service. In both Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, African agency manifests itself in dealings and negotiations with the former colonial powers. And this illustrated also the room for manoeuvre the Nigerian and Iborian elites were given by, or could take from Britain and France respectively. I think there again, it's these cases of Israeli, West German, and we'll come to that later, American involvement, which is key because whereas Britain responded to this involvement from West Germany, uh, with its Cold War mentality and grudgingly came to expect, except being uh, replaced by another Western and in this case NATO power, France, France's reaction was completely different. With its neocolonial mentality, it was very clear that it d- did not tolerate being pushed out in any way, even if it was just in a relatively minor area. And this was made very clear to Uffe who wanted to rely on the French for his security. So, in so doing, and in terms of the kind of architecture, African security architecture and lasting influence of these uh, negotiations and the making of the post colonial relationship, Offre Boigny and France established a Franco Warren security relationship, an architecture that lasts to some extent to today, and that also was repeated in a number of former French colonies, and that has been kept uh, largely alive.
1: Thank you. Speaking of the Franco-American rivalry on a global scale, did De Gaulle have a problem with the United States when the latter stepped in after France's retreat in Southeast Asia at the same timeframe. How did West African leaders take advantage of the Franco-American rivalry during the early Cold War?
2: I think this is a very interesting question. I mean, in, in terms of Southeast Asia, I'm not a Southeast Asia expert, I think my general understanding is that De Gaulle, when he returned to power in 1958, he had largely made his peace with the loss of Indochina. And especially since uh, the French colonies in Southeast Asia, they had not been lost under him. Now, this being said, he believed that the Americans were doing a rather poor job in Vietnam. And uh, as a result also, he really saw them as poorly suited to deal with France's former colonial possessions anywhere around the globe. And more generally in the way the Americans approach what was at the time considered the third world, and uh, i.e. the global south. Now, he could be uh, very vociferously critical of the American war in Vietnam, but it was very different from his concerns when it came about United States involvement in Africa. And of course, this was a sort of... a concern and also an irritation that had been heightened because of the American position, especially under Kennedy during the Algeria war. And there, when the United States, of course, criticized uh, the French. Now, de Gaulle, and especially his Monsieur l'Afrique, Jacques Focard, they were absolutely convinced that the f- Americans in Africa, that were out there to take away their sphere of influence from them. Now, it would not be an exaggeration to actually state that de Gaulle and his right-hand man, they were absolutely paranoid when it came to the Americans in Africa. Now, because the Americans, they were happy to provide some assistance to Cote d'Ivoire and other former French colonies, but Again, this was at the time of increasing involvement in Vietnam and many, many other commitments around the world, which they considered, the Americans considered to be much more important from a strategic perspective than Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa. Actually, and this is something that transpired clearly by studying American documents, the Americans wanted the former colonial powers to remain responsible for their former colonies. And it was only when the former colonial power was pushed out and potentially ran the risk of being replaced by an eastern power uh, that they were willing to step in and this only happened to some extent in Nigeria. This was not really the case in Cote d'Ivoire. They were happy to help to some extent but they would not stand unnecessarily on the French toes. Now even though, and this I clearly show, even though these concerns by de Gaulle about the Americans were not real, Uffe Boigny very successfully and skillfully used them to get what he wanted from France. And this was particularly the case, firstly, during uh, the negotiations uh, post-independence for the cooperation agreements, when actually Uffe Boigny succeeded to obtain perfectly tailored uh, defense and military assistance agreements from the French for himself and uh, the other uh, entente countries with which he was allied. And that was only so because the French really feared that the Americans would come and take Cote d'Ivoire from them. Now, a second instance where it was hugely helpful to him to actually have the specter of the United States in negotiations with France when the French, in line with their military defense reforms, wanted to withdraw their military base from Côte d'Ivoire, that actually in the mid-1960s, he succeeded to convince the French to stay by actually playing on this threat of uh, potential American encroachments in their sphere of influence. Of course, this was only part of the equation. What eventually helped to make make the French stay was also, of course, the wave of coups that shook Africa in the mid-1960s. However, it was really... Uh, uh, something he could play on to get what he wanted from the French, because ultimately he did not trust the Americans himself, but he could use them in order to get what he wanted from
1: France. Marco, what lessons should each of the players involved in the construction of post-colonial relations in West Africa learn? Do the experiences offer a parallel lesson in the age of the PRC rise and new strategic situations? Will Afro-Asian solidarity and the common African community remain just a dream?
2: Of course, a difficult question uh, while also being tempting, um, it is, of course, to uh, apply lessons from the past to the present. What can be learned is that firstly, there are always multi-layered factors and contingency to be taken into account. And it was not just about the Cold War decolonization, but also about national visions, national security interests, domestic politics, and regional rivalry. I think the problem is often that African countries are too much seen in a relationship of dependency that uh, Western or other analysts sometimes tend to forget that they pursue national interests like any other power in the world. Notably, the rivalry that opposed Nigerian cultivar to Ghana was, of course, somewhat influenced by the Cold War and decolonization, but it was ultimately of a sub-regional nature and it was driven by national interests. That was the basis of this rivalry or these rivalries. So it is important to see beyond such grand narratives as the Cold War and decolonization and therefore dig deeper to see how post-colonial relations were affected by local, sub-regional and regional factors. So it's the complexity that has always to be taken into account and I think this is something what distinguishes historians from other disciplines who deal with similar issues is that history allows to reflect such complexity in detail. In some ways, of course, this also provides insights for those external powers that are currently involved in Africa. I mean, analysts have spoken uh, since for more than a decade now of the so-called new scramble for Africa, of course, which sees um, China heavily involved in African affairs and bankrolling big projects without asking any questions about human rights as well as often Western uh, providers of development aid do. And of course, the United States, after having largely withdrawn from Africa after the Cold War, and especially after Somalia uh, in the early 1990s, uh, has never really made a full return to Africa. Uh, you can see that, of course, with the with problems uh, it has to find place for AfriCom, and so it largely left China, uh, the PRC, relatively unchallenged in uh, in Africa. But of course, despite sort of this lack of being really challenged, and perhaps Biden is now trying to do so, uh, is that. Uh, There are, of course, increasing local, sub-regional and regional resistances against uh, China and uh, concerns about Beijing's increasingly potentially all too mighty role. Of course, we should not forget the French are still quite influential in Africa. And uh, the concerns that uh, Africans might have about China, um, they can become of course more pronounced if China fails actually to more thoroughly engage with African factors and concerns, actually starts looking more at the local and sub-regional level. And also of course, if it continues to exploit the continent's vast natural resources in return for relatively short-lived uh, infrastructure or, or it continues to empty uh, the sea of fish and you know that African fishermen hardly can catch anything anymore. So I would say when it comes to China, of course, today it's very difficult to speak of anything like Afro-Asian solidarity. And I think this is interesting, actually, because if we look at the uh, non-aligned movement, uh, Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement, uh, well, it's something where China actually, or the PRC, never shown uh, was never shining because already in an early stage, uh, China tried to hijack the Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement and radicalize it, and then ultimately it never really worked out. Uh, but there was nevertheless a certain degree of african solidarity uh, during early years of independence, uh, we can see it in the book when India, for instance, supported the development of the Nigerian armed forces, but. Um, again, it was largely disrupted and. Uh, It is question of whether there's going to be something such as an Afro-Asian solidarity movement uh, functioning anytime soon. Now, as for your African community, I think it will definitely remain a dream, at least uh, the way it was imagined by uh, colonial and often racist thinkers of the interwar period and the immediate post-war period. Nevertheless, I think we can see it in terms of migration uh, or other Uh, you know, natural resource and so on. And the sheer proximity is that the destinies of Africa and Europe, they are closely connected. And of course, more cooperation is needed.
1: Thank you so much, Marco, for sharing your perspective. We've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you one final question. What are you working on these days?
2: I'm working on a couple of projects, but I think the main one I'm working on currently is actually uh, to look at the West's and uh, Western-oriented African countries' involvement in the Nigerian Civil War, because what we know about the Nigerian Civil War is quite interesting. I mean, in addition to all the humanitarian catastrophe it was, what is interesting is really, if you look at it, you see Western countries on opposing sides. So you have Britain, together with the Soviet Union, not in a coordinated way, but both supporting federal Nigeria. And you have France, together with South Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Gambon, Rhodesia, and so on, Portugal, of course, supporting the secessionist Biafra. So in this project, I want to look into what I consider a dirty war and how they actually supported the different warring factions and how the different warring factions mobilized this support. And I want to look at these uh, rather conflicting, um, you know, narratives of conflicting explanations that have been put forward why there was this particular constellation during the Nigerian Civil War, and in so doing, I really want to question, uh, you know, different narratives and how Cold War imperatives could be put into question by colonial and imperial agendas, white supremacist rearguard action, and so on and so forth. So, in so doing, I also want to show that you had African countries and leaders who actually acted as providers of military assistance, and also show that West Africa's Cold War was more multipolar than hitherto assumed, and I think this is something that can be helpful in informing uh, not only history, but also the social sciences, notably international relations.
1: Great, Marco. Thank you so much. I look forward to reading your new work. Have a good day.
2: Thank you very much.